Well, the clock on the wall says it's 2 o'clock. My watch says it's not quite, but we're going to go ahead and jump in and do some kind of introductory stuff and not actually start the class. Maybe for another minute or two, we may have a few more folks uh, transition in. Uh, I'm Dan Bouchelle. I'm the president of Missions Resource Network, and we're a DFW-based organization. Probably ought to back up a slide. I probably got ahead of myself. We, uh, we uh, work to equip congregations uh, and uh, uh, disciples to make disciples of Jesus all around the world. We do what we call mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring. So mobilizing, we're just trying to pay attention to what God is doing in the world and then gather up the resources to join him where he's really on the move in a significant way. Right now, one of those places is in the uh, Muslim world, particularly around the Mediterranean, where there's an opening uh, to the gospel. And uh, then equipping, we help local churches in the United States around the world really have best practices and good visions and strategies for advancing the gospel, planting churches and making disciples. Uh, we train the workers, what we call preparing and then caring, we provide missionary care, uh, screening workers, providing on-field care, and then re-entry when they come back to the United States. And so uh, we uh, uh, really enjoy getting to work with the church all around the world and paying attention to what God is doing and sharing some of those stories. Um, partly because we've been very involved in trying to reach uh, Muslim background people in North Africa, the Middle East, and particularly refugees coming into Europe. One of the subjects that's really been pressing in on this is how we understand the gospel. Um, because we live in a Western context where we have had one way of talking about the gospel that's been so dominant for so long, we've begun to equate it with the gospel itself. And that is that the gospel is an answer to the question of what do I do about my guilt? Uh, that I have broken God's laws, I've done things that are wrong, uh, and I am guilty before God, the judge. And what do I do about the fact? And we have so focused in on how the message of the gospel addresses the problem of guilt that we have lost sight of the fact that the gospel is bigger than a guilt solution problem. The gospel speaks to a whole range of issues that deal with the human predicament and guilt is only one aspect of that and in working with people who are coming out of a Middle Eastern and North African Muslim context they are not really coming from a guilt culture and the message that's going to connect with them is not the message that generally has connected in the Western world because they don't think about the world the same way we do and that presents some real challenges. But it's just not that. It's everywhere in the United States. We live in a world that has fundamentally changed on us. Uh, we live in what we might call the post-everything world. It's post-industrial. It's uh, post-imperialist. It's post-modern. It's post-toasties. We, we just post everything in our, in our culture. And when I was growing up in the 70s primarily, uh, we all kind of had a sense that there was a right and a wrong, and we may not have uh, done what was right, but we knew what was right, and we knew what was wrong, and we kind of had labels for that, and there was a general sort of basic conviction about morality, at least in the little subculture that I grew up in in the, in the Bible Belt. But that is just not the world that we live in. And we are now trying to speak gospel to people who typically don't feel guilty. And our message is about how do you deal with your guilt when they're like, what guilt? <laughs> and so our message is not being perceived a lot of time as good news. Because we're dealing with a population that doesn't feel the problem we're designed to address. We have a product for which there is no market. And now we don't know how to speak. So what we've done typically is like, wow, these people don't feel guilty. We need to make them feel guilty so that we have a message for our gospel. The problem with that is uh, we are not perceived as preaching good news. How many of you have been reading any of the literature that's been coming from uh, Gabe Lyons, Dave Kinnaman, uh, You Lost Me, um, all of those books dealing with the young adult population over the last uh, decade or two? What do they say about churches? Why are they checking out at churches? Remember some of the top reasons they identify? Hypocrisy. <coughs> Hypocrisy. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Uh, anybody remember another? 
political entanglements. Okay. Right at the top of that list, though, is churches are so overwhelmingly judgmental. And if you wanted to capture a phrase that really spoke to millennial and whatever they're calling the next generation, Generation Z or whatever's going to catch on, it might be the phrase, don't judge me. Don't judge me. And churches are perceived as being very judgmental and condemning of anybody who's not in a very narrative, very narrow lane. But we say our message is gospel. Well, what does the word gospel mean? It's an old English word, but what is, what's the Greek word behind it mean? What does it originally mean? Good news. It means good news. That's right. Uh, so why do you think of all the ways that the New Testament writers could have chosen to describe the work and the message of Jesus, they chose news. Why news? It could have been a philosophy. They could have chosen Sophia. They could have talked about law, nomos. Uh, they could have talked about teaching, did okay. They could have, they had a number of, of words that they could have chosen to summarize and yet, we have this phrase, gospel, euangelion, good news. What is it about the work and the acts of Jesus that produced that particular way of talking about the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus? Any, any ideas? Why that one? Why not some of the others? I have no idea, but I'm thinking that... It was so exclusive to the Jews, and nobody else could participate. So for us Gentiles, it was great news to be included in a plan that was going to benefit benefit us as far as our, our lives on earth and in later. So something happened to change uh, the message of that had been primarily limited to Israel, to the opening up of the whole world. Something fundamental had changed. Um, I want to I take you to what I think is a, a pretty central passage in addressing this, and I think this has massive implications if we can grasp it. That the gospel cannot be reduced to an idea or a set of words uh, to a particular teaching. Uh, it is instead an event, which is why it is called news, and particularly good news. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, writes this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance. And here we go. That Christ died. For our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, what's the theory of atonement there? There's no theory of atonement, is there? What he, what he says the gospel is, is a set of events. Something happened. God came into the world in the person of Christ, Jesus. And that he died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. It's an event. God acted in the world. And the gospel is not an explanation, per se, of that event. It is the story itself. And how that story strikes you and how it speaks to you, to some degrees, depends on where you're standing and what you're experiencing. But what is consistent about it is the events, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that this is God acting in the world. Uh, and 
Everything comes back to those events that God has revealed himself in Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection, and that changes everything. The world tilted on its axis. The world broke open. There's now a possibility for an entire new way of living and being in the world because of the decisive action of God in Christ. But the one thing we don't have anywhere in the New Testament is a systematic theology of the atonement. We have a lot of different ways of explaining what happened on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of different ways of taking that event and applying them to people's different situations, but no unified theory of the atonement, no reduction of that event to one way of talking, which is enormously important if you want to take a message that's going to go over time to every people and every culture around the world. You're not depending on one logic or one way of thinking. Move on to the next slide if you would. So here's some of the questions that I've been wrestling with now for a number of years. A lot of other people have been wrestling with for a number of years. The first is, if you would move on here, uh, what, why does our salvation story in the West seem to take place in a courtroom? If you ask the typical American preacher, pastor, evangelist, motivated Christian to explain the gospel, almost invariably they're going to take you into a courtroom. And they're going to have God seated on the judge's bench and Satan is the prosecuting attorney, and he's laying out a case against us, and one by one, we go on trial, all alone, by ourselves, as good individualistic Americans, and we stand before the judgment seat of God, and Satan is laying out a list of all the crimes we have committed, and the evidence that we have broken God's laws, and Jesus is our attorney, and he's there to defend us. And then in this weird legal move that would not be accepted in any court I know of, the defense attorney takes the place of the accused and he gets punished and the accused is acquitted and walks out and this is called justice. That, that's an odd way of constructing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's an odd way of thinking about justice. And it doesn't really explain, how do you get a baptistry in a courthouse, and what would you use it for? Because the baptistry, which is the central image for initiation into Christ, uh, the primary sacrament of entrance into Christ, is a symbol of washing, rebirth, renewal, cleansing. But it doesn't fit in a courtroom. Can you imagine if we, at the end of trials, people had a choice of either going to jail or being baptized? You know, if they were baptized, fine, you get right out. I mean, this is, this is a strange combination of images, and yet we have almost exclusively limited the gospel to courtroom, individualistic salvation, legal language, but even that presents all kinds of challenges. Now, by the way, that way of thinking about salvation is incredibly modern. Um, and you have to go over a thousand years before you have anything that even begins to approach that way of thinking about it, but it's really in the American context, in our jurisprudence, that you have that kind of image emerge. And that's not to say it's, it's illegitimate, but it's certainly not all sufficient. So here's kind of uh, some other questions. How can the story be good news if people don't feel guilty? What if people don't already feel like they're lawbreakers? What if they don't buy into our moral principles and they just don't feel like they've done anything all that wrong? Or how, do we have to start with bad news? You are a condemned sinner, lost. Now, a lot of evangelicals realize that's not a great opening line. And so we have to back up and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Unfortunately, you're a terrible sinner and you're staying condemned. And, and, and we don't know how to really... Start And if you start with, well, God loves you and has a beautiful plan for your life, wonderful plan for your life, now you're making that person the center of the story. And now it's all about them and their life and inviting Jesus into their life. The gospel doesn't seem to be about inviting Jesus into our life. It's about God inviting us into Jesus' life. And so we've got the wrong person at the center of the story. What if our experience of sin, and everybody experiences sin, what if our experience of sin doesn't really manifest as guilt? But what if it manifests itself as emptiness. I got two grown kids that are off and away from home. We have one who was born 
untimely late, and she is a sophomore in high school, and she is constantly telling us about her friends who are contemplating suicide because their life seems so utterly pointless. They don't feel guilty, but they feel empty. Uh, or alienation, a sense of I don't belong. We are so individualistic as Americans that we have people who feel like they don't belong to anyone. Our families are not stable, our communities are not stable, we are so focused on individual rights, individual experience, individual accomplishment, that people are growing up and feeling absolutely alone. We have more people living alone in apartments without meaningful community. Uh, marriage is receding. People have a serials, series of relationships. Alienation. People feel enormous alienation. They feel emptiness, purposelessness, or shame. Brene Brown is making quite a living now selling books about shame. And shame is making a comeback. Uh, public shaming now in social media is a massive force. Uh, and we don't feel guilty, but the idea that we can be excluded from a community, excluded from a group, if we take the wrong position on this or that, or we say the wrong thing. In our culture, we are shame-oriented in a way that we just have not been in the past. Or fear, the fear of powerful forces, demonic forces. People experience brokenness in so many ways, they experience it in so many ways, but we only seem to know how to talk about guilt in the church. Uh, so do we have to preach guilt before we preach gospel? Do we have to punch people in the face before we bring out the gurney? You know, is that the deal? Um, that we have to offend people first? Is the gospel good news? Another way of saying this is, is the gospel good news to people where they already are if they don't feel guilty yet? Can we go straight from the cross and the resurrection to people's experience and tell them good news without first having to tell them how guilty and horrible and wretched they are as human beings. Um, so <clears throat> one of the books that really helped me with this, this is an older book, W. Paul Jones' book, Theological Worlds. Uh, you know, back, oh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I don't know how old this, Leonard, do you know how old this book is? Really helpful book. Uh, w. Paul Jones talked about different ways that people experience brokenness. Uh, and. Uh, he talked about how there's just a manifest group uh, of ways, and we're going to unpack this in a minute, but we typically only focus on how the, the cross speaks to the issues, uh, issue of guilt. Well, what do you do if people don't feel guilty? Well, you start offering programs that address felt needs. Uh, so maybe you're offering a marriage class, or maybe you're offering help with parenting, or maybe you're teaching them finance, and you bring in Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University, or you start a 12-step program, uh, celebrate recovery. But once you get people in your building at some program, now the challenge is, okay, we've got them in the room, and we've shown them we care about them. How do we convince them they're wretched sinners so we can tell them the good news? We're, we're, we don't have a message that comes straight from the cross to where they are. Rather, we've got to pick them up and carry them over here and convince them that they're guilty sinners so we can tell them good news, and it feels like a bait and switch. I came here for help with my parenting, but now you're trying to do something else with me. When there are ways of speaking gospel directly from where people, from, from the, the cross and from the passion of Christ to that event itself. So for people who experience a brokenness, not as guilt, but say alienation. W. Paul Jones says, we need to be preaching a message of reconciliation. When you think about how the gospel is spoken of or talked about, uh, for example, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about a, a ministry of reconciliation. We have images uh, of Jesus, familial images, like the prodigal son who is reunited uh, with a family. Uh, adoption language from Paul. But the idea that we are people who have been cut off from deep and abiding relationships with a father who need to be reconciled because we have dishonored the father or broken away or people who feel a sense of, of emptiness. My life is purposeless. Well, the resurrection negates the death that negates everything else. 
if you have a message of resurrection, the fact that everybody's going to die doesn't mean that your life has to just be erased and be pointless. We serve a God who has the ability to raise the dead and extend people's life. And you can have abundant life now. And we don't have the graveyard coming to obliterate and erase everything. So we have a message about emptiness that doesn't have to start with guilt, but can start with just the profound emptiness we feel. Or bondage. A lot of the world lives uh, in fear of great spiritual powers, government powers, just a sense of overwhelming powers out there that have trapped us and we're powerless and there's nothing we can do about it and we're in bondage. Well, for the first thousand years of the church, the primary image of gospel was Christus Victor, the, the victorious Christ who overcomes the powers, principalities of the world. And in much of the world today, that is still the way the gospel is going to resonate with people most powerfully. Or, for example, suffering. People who are stuck in suffering and they just can't get over the fact that the world is a place that is so profoundly broken. And how could a loving God possibly uh, exist if he is all-powerful? How could he possibly be good and let the world suffer like that? But we have a story of God who enters into suffering who suffers with us and transforms and tr uh, changes the nature of suffering and enables people to live victoriously in the midst of suffering. But you see the full range of the ways that the Bible talks about salvation do not require that we have to start with guilt. Now, is there real guilt in people's lives? Absolutely. Do we have a message for that? Absolutely. As people come to know the Lord and know his ways, they're going to recognize they have a guilt problem too. But what happens when we don't address these kinds of problems? Well, one example is, or I could take you many places, but for example in Africa. You've got people who have been brought into the church and they've been preached a message about guilt before God and they go to church and faithfully there, believing that Jesus forgives their sins before God and then they have a child get sick and they slip off to the witch doctor. Because Jesus helps you with your guilt, but he's not going to help you with the evil powers or the curses that have been brought on your child. And I was talking to a guy in a West African country, and he was asking me, how do we defeat the Pentecostals? I'm like, uh, why do you think they're your enemy? You know? And I say, well, if you are not preaching that Jesus has the power to overcome the spiritual forces that your people are afraid of, you are never going to be able to really experience holistic transformation in them. You've got to close the back door by preaching that Jesus is more powerful than spiritual forces. But he only knows how to preach about guilt. And they're hemorrhaging people right and left to pagan religions and to other expressions of Christian faith because they don't know how to preach to a broader set of needs. Uh, go ahead and move on. One of the books that's been really helpful to us lately is this book by Jason George's The 3D Gospel. And he uses a slightly different image to talk about the cultures in the world. Now, uh, he talks about three different primary culture groups in the world. Mark Hooper, who's going to teach the class tomorrow and really focus on shame, uh, is an anthropologist. And, and he would tell you, this is grotesquely oversimplified. Okay? One of my favorite quotes is, and I, I, I'd have to look it up who said it, but uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Uh, okay, well, this one is oversimplified. It's somewhat wrong, but it's really, really useful. You can kind of categorize cultures between guilt-based cultures, shame-based cultures, and fear-based cultures. Traditionally, the Western, particularly Northern European cultures, have been primarily focused on guilt. There's a right, there's a wrong, God's the lawgiver. The king or the government is responsible to enact the laws that are fit with the, the royal uh, lawgiver, and sin is breaking those laws. And really, really we're focused on that. Uh, and so most Americans tend to focus, historic Anglo-dominant uh, culture Americans tend to focus on here, but most of the world are shame-oriented or fear-oriented cultures. Mark, could you take just a minute and unpack a little bit of the difference I know you'll go into this a little bit more tomorrow, between the way a guilt, shame, and fear-oriented cultures uh, think and how those are different. Yeah, uh, in, a, in a guilt, and a lot of it has to do with kinship or community. And in a guilt-associated uh, 
culture, this is more individualistic. This is why this, this resonates with the Western world. Uh, shame is more community. Um, in, in a Muslim context, for example, I, it's not a sin unless I get caught. Because that may bring shame to my family. That brings shame to my ummah, my community. Okay? And so that is much more, and this, by the way, the Bible was written more in a shame. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow. But the Bible was written in that context, not this context. Okay? And, and so all of these are present. In America, we, guilt is what you see. Shame is there. Fear is there. But it's not prominent. In shame-based cultures, guilt is there, shame or fear is there, but shame is prominent because of the community. In fear, it's just in more mystical, spirit-based uh, uh, cultures, and they're always afraid of what's about to happen uh, that from the principalities and powers. Uh, we probably need to learn more about that one, but uh, but that's pretty much the difference: it is your community and your worldview on how you see things around you. So. Um, go ahead and back up. Um, well, we're already on this slide. Okay. Um, one of the things that this distorts is the fact that um, these are not necessarily opposed to each other. You can have a strong sense of guilt and a strong sense of shame. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's an either or. But cultures tend to think about things in the language of one of these three, and the other are kind of subcurrents. Now, I would argue, uh, based on no evidence whatsoever, but just my own personal experience, which is you know what I believe more than evidence most of the time, um, that the fellowship that I grew up in and been part of, the Churches of Christ, have been more shame-oriented than most evangelical churches because we've been more communal and our understanding of church, salvation, ecclesiology has been really important to us. So we didn't talk when I was growing up about being born again or spirit-filled. We talked about being members of the church. Members of the Lord's church. Um, and if we made some major mistake in our life, the consequence was we were disfellowshipped, or if our theology wasn't quite right, or we did something in worship that wasn't quite right, there was the fear of disfellowship. And if you made a mistake, you didn't just go and ask God or talk to the priest, you needed to go forward and make public confession. And so you have the walk of shame to go forward. Um, and out of that environment, which by the way has pretty much faded away in a lot of the churches I know of, there became a real deep sense of shame, but we had no language for it. And the message that we preached was one of the forgiveness of your sins and your guilt is removed, but what about the people who have long ago had their sins forgiven, but they still feel an overwhelming sense of shame and the stories are still told in the church about them and people who don't go to church not because they don't think God loves them or forgives them but by can't they can't deal with the shame they feel in the church for a story in their past that the gospel didn't give them the power to overcome and the community didn't know how to do reconciliation they only knew how to do legal guilt removal not shame removal and I think that's one of the reasons that our fellowship, and with, I say our, you may not come from that background, but within Church of Christ, I think it's one of the reasons why we haven't really connected and crossed over really well with a lot of evangelicals. They tended to think more individualistically. They tended to respond more out of a guilt culture. We have had a, a strong shame dynamic within our fellowship. And I certainly have felt that profoundly in my life. But I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't understand why being forgiven didn't heal a lot of what was broken inside of me because I felt this profound shame. And the idea that Jesus not only removed my guilt but removed my shame, that he made me acceptable, 
that he made me welcome company, that he was not ashamed to be seen with me, or he was not in any way afraid to be associated with me, despite my shameful behavior, which would cause me to be an outcast. The community didn't know how to de-shame people. And I think we have hemorrhaged largely, and as our culture is increasingly not a guilt culture, but it's increasingly a shame culture with a different set of standards, and we're fitting in on social media or fitting in in a community that is sort of cobbled together out of common interests and is inherently unstable, the power of shame to exclude is really strong in the United States. So this isn't just about, well, how do we reach Muslim immigrants, or how do we reach Asian immigrants, or how do we reach African immigrants, or how do we equip missionaries to go? This is really about how do we connect the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, to the way people are already feeling the effects of sin without going all judgy. We all know John 3.16 has been a staple of evangelistic preaching. Somehow we haven't heard John 3.17. Anybody have John 3.17 memorized? Did not send his son into the world to condemn it. The world might God, be saved. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I really think most of the non-church-going United States would be stunned to hear John 3.17. Maybe we need to go to football games and have these big signs that have John 3.17 on them. Or when we have the little black eye on a football player, put John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Do we have a message of the cross that speaks to something other than you're a wretched sinner? Now, there's a strong reaction particularly from the conservative evangelical reformed tradition to people who are trying to expand our understanding of the gospel uh, and who are talking about kingdom. And so you have people like uh, John MacArthur, who I have tremendous respect for as a church leader and as an expositor, preacher of the word, but uh, he and, and, and guys like John Piper who will make statements like the you know, penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is kind of the classic judicial way of thinking about the cross, is not one way of talking about the gospel. It is the gospel in its totality. Well, it's one very effective, historically significant way of preaching the gospel that can be anchored to texts and images that are deeply rooted in the New Testament. But it is hardly the full message of the cross, death, burial, and resurrection. And it simply is broadcasting on a channel that most people are not listening to in the United States, in the Western world, which has been historically a guilt-oriented world, or the dominant world. All right, I'm going to pause and let you ask some questions, make some comments. If you would like to, before we jump in and kind of unpack this, uh, this little uh, three-tiered way of thinking about culture and how the gospel speaks to it. What implications does this have for you? Yes, sir. When you talk about salvation, it contrasts to condemnation. Saint Jesus not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So if, if you experience lostness as emptiness, what does salvation mean? Yeah. Abundance. So you are saved from emptiness and lost from purposelessness to great meaning. If your experience of lostness is alienation from the world, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I am not welcomed by anyone. I am unloved, unwelcome, abandoned, alone in the world. Well, doesn't that really describe what it feels like to be lost? Think about a child that gets lost in a store. I'm disconnected from everybody and everyone. 
in every place that I know. I don't recognize, I don't belong, I don't fit. What does it mean to be found? How do you, how, how is a lost child found? When, do, when are they found? When they're reunited. Do what? When they're reunited. When they're reunited with a parent. Now, could we talk about that as a naughty child who broke the rule to not wander off from mama? Maybe. If the child was instructed, don't wander off. But does that summarize, I mean, does that grasp the totality of that child's experience of lostness and foundness? And, and, and does the parent, after the child has been lost and they're frantically searching through the mall for their child, do they, is the first thing that parent going to say, why did you break the rule? You know, and I forgive you. No, I mean, well, maybe, but that would not be healthy. You know. Is there a violation of a rule there? Likely, often, maybe. But salvation, if you have been alienated, if you have been cut off, is about re reconnection. So salvation is bigger than forgiveness. And frankly, we'll talk about this on whatever is the third day of the week. This is Friday. Friday. We'll talk about, um, we're going to unpack three gospel narratives and talk about how is sin or brokenness experienced here and how is this good news and what does salvation look like in this story. So we're going to unpack that with some gospel narratives here in a couple of days. But salvation is bigger than forgiveness. And forgiveness often is broader than guilt categories. Um, Jesus will often say to people, your sins are forgiven in context where that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in that moment. You know, the guy who's lowered down through the roof, the paralytic, and Jesus tells him his sins are forgiven. It's like, that's like a Geico commercial. You know, it's kind of like, and you could save a lot of money on your car insurance. It's like, well, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here? Well, they're thinking about salvation differently, and they're thinking about forgiveness differently than we think about it from our background. And we'll unpack some of that on Friday. Any other thoughts or questions or things that this brings to mind? Yes, ma'am. This has really come home to me recently because we have a very active friend speak program. Uh -huh. And I've been privileged to be reading Luke and now Acts with two ladies from Syria and one from Saudi Arabia. And when we first ran across the word sin in English, I was they didn't know what sin was. So I'm trying to explain to them, and it became very obvious to me quickly that they don't they didn't really have a concept of having a relationship with God that had been broken in any way. And so I've I've had to kind of look at things differently from their perspective to try to get them to understand some things that we're reading together in the gospel. And you know, I had read some things before meeting with them, but I hadn't really hit upon that yet. Right. And the shaming culture, of course, is what they're coming from more than the guilt culture that you're talking about. And it's been really interesting to me to kind of learn where they're coming from and to try to emphasize more Jesus and what he was doing with people and his relationship with people and getting to know them and wanting to know them and be involved in their lives. And I think that's kind of the, the common ground we've been able to establish at this point is why you know, one of the Syrian ladies just when we read the parables and things and read about Jesus and her comment was, he's just so wonderful, he's just so great, he just really loves people. And I thought, okay, this is what she needs to be getting right now. I was, I was visiting with uh, a new Christian believer in Athens last summer. She was actually my translator when I was preaching here. And uh, she was uh, middle class in Tehran before uh, she came, before she left Iran. And she became convinced that Islam wasn't true. She, she had all kinds of questions uh, and problems with Muhammad and she went to the Imam at the mosque and she couldn't get answers and she was just shamed for having questions. This is just right, you should accept it. And, and her boyfriend became a Christian and he was arrested along with a lot of other people and four people from their church were beheaded. And, but he had political connections because his dad was a military officer. So he got deported <coughs> and she went with him. Uh, and she became a Christian and partly because of a dream that God 
had given her, and she saw how the Christians welcomed people in. And she is now a translator in a church, and she works for Franklin Graham's ministry full-time as a translator. She's an amazing woman, but I was asking her about her experience with Christians and what she would say to Christians from the West. And what she said is, I love Jesus, and I love what Jesus is about. And she said, you Christians, you, you need to learn some things. I said, okay, well, tell us. She said, you are too judgmental. I said, what do you mean? She said, you Christians keep telling me that my mother is going to hell. You don't know my mother. Um, she, is, she is a good person who is doing the best to obey Allah as she understands him. She is going to stand before God. How can you pronounce her fate before God? This is someone who has accepted Jesus, who's following Jesus, but she's reacting against a simple guilt-oriented way of talking about the gospel that is pronouncing judgment and putting Christians in a position, and, and she is struggling with a message that is so overly focused on one aspect. Not that she really wants her mother to come know Jesus, but she's afraid that Christians may be some of the biggest problems in getting her mother to know Jesus because the Jesus she knows isn't going around condemning people, but welcoming people into a new life. Um, and, and she's not saying that there's not a judgment. But it's really hard for Western Christians who have been deeply steeped in a condemnation forgiveness model of gospel as the only way of talking about gospel to even unpack what she's talking about and to have a language to even address or understand where she's going with that. Yes, ma'am. Um, most of my friends um, are, are definitely feel the church is judgmental. Uh, and I'm, you know, because I often bring it up, you know, they know I go to church. Most, and I have a lot of non-Christian friends. They are very social, into social justice. They do a lot of good works. So they totally reject the idea of, they don't like the word sin. They don't like the, they don't feel like, they're inferior to me, which I know no one's inferior to me. Um, and um, they are looking for community. I, everybody, I, most people I know are looking for community because I know a large number of single, single mm -hmm. people. And in our, my environment, we, uh, there's 40% of, of our city that's single, or live alone. I don't know they're single for a variety of reasons, but they live alone. So they are looking for community, and I think that many people are looking for community. So I think that, uh, you know, there's ways. I, I know that everything you're saying re resonates right. with me in, in well, a major way. Here's what, uh, some way of thinking about that. Because of the way we have thought about the gospel, and we've, we've kind of reduced it to a set of doctrines or ideas or principles that you have to accept, and then a transition, transactional ritual you go through, and now you from wrong to right, all this kind of way. We miss the beauty of the narrative of how Jesus operated a lot of the time. So we've typically thought that the, the progression is first you believe, then you behave, then you belong. We get your thinking straight, we get your behavior straight, and then you belong in the community. You know, now we may talk to somebody about their behavior, but we understand we've got to change their thinking and then we've got to change their behavior. Get your sins forgiven, clean up your behavior, then you belong in the church. Is that the way Jesus operated? You can belong in my group after you get your theology straight and your behavior cleaned up. See, like Jesus started with belong. First you belong, and then you behave. You start your life being conformed to the model of Jesus. And then somewhere along the line, you kind of figure out what God is doing and it starts making sense to you. And you start believing something here. Now, there's some belief from the beginning. God's doing something in this Jesus guy. But, I mean, we got Jesus sending people out. Uh, the 70, for example, the limited commission. Uh, Luke 10. And they're out there preaching gospel preaching good news. They don't know about the death, burial, and resurrection. It hasn't happened yet. Their understanding of Messiah is way off from what Jesus is doing. What are they preaching? 
you know, God's doing something, and you can be a part of it, and you can join us in this deal. But the believing part, well, that's really fuzzy. But the belonging part, and the shaping and the forming of life part, and you think about community, you think about purposefulness, you think about all of those broken aspects of life, well, you know, removal of guilt is going to be part of the package, but somehow we missed out on the narrative. And the death, burial, and resurrection opens the door now to address all the ways that brokenness is experienced and offer hope to all of them. All right, let's, let's move on. We need to begin to unpack. Let's unpack a little bit. Um, here's one way of categorizing the three oversimplified ways of thinking about uh, culture, uh, guilt, shame, and fear. With the, in the guilt category, we tend to think of God as the lawgiver or the judge. So we have the perennial courtroom imagery. Now, once again, we're using American notions of law courts and judges and jurisprudence, which are nowhere evident in the New Testament. When the New Testament talks about justification or judges, the American courtroom is not in play. But that's our context. And so we think of God as sinless, perfect. The Jesus kept all the rules, didn't do anything wrong. God's holiness, we talk about he alone perfectly keeps the absolute moral standard. He's the absolute rule keeper and the rule giver. Um, and God's sovereignty, he forgives transact, uh, transgressors and enacts our future salvation. And then God's righteousness drives into punitive justice. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because somebody had to pay for these sins. Because God in his justice couldn't let sins go unpunished. So somebody had to level it out. Somebody had to take the price. So God took that. Now, don't hear me being disrespectful or uh, saying that's not a very useful and powerful way of understanding the cross. God has used that understanding powerfully to transform lives and offer a lot of people hope and has blessed me with it. It's just not all sufficient. Is God a judge? Yes. Do we break God's laws? Absolutely. Does God's justice need to express itself in a way that decisively deals with sin and removes guilt? Absolutely. But it's not, it's not complete. But from a shame-oriented, which is a more communal way of thinking, a shame-oriented background, God is more of a patron. Or, if you have already heard and understood the gospel, more of a father. But don't expect the father imagery to be present in a shame-oriented culture until they hear the gospel. God is more a patron. Uh, I know king or rulers listed under fear, but God also is a, understood as, as a king or a very powerful person who is a provider and protector for his realm. And the focus is on God's splendor, God's superior faithfulness. Uh, for people, for example, from a Muslim background, they're not going to talk a lot about the love of God, but about the honor of God and the glory of God. Well, well the Bible's full of that but you don't hear a great deal about it in Western Christianity. <coughs> God's holiness is expressed less in his moral perfection and in his gloriousness or his deserving of all praise, honor, adulation, his high position lifted up above all others. Uh, and God expresses his sovereignty and his salvation by honoring lowly mortals and lifting them up and giving honor to people who otherwise have no honor and drawing them up into his community, his people. You who were once aliens have now been brought near in Christ Jesus. Uh, and God's righteousness is not seen in terms of legal but rather relational faithfulness. God keeps his promises. God is faithful to his, uh, to his family, to his children. Uh, God keeps his laws. And if you don't really understand the shame world, a lot of Romans isn't going to make sense to you. Because Paul is spending a whole lot of time in Roman defending God's honor and demonstrating that God has kept his promises to Israel despite how it may look. And Jesus was defending God's faithfulness and proving God's faithfulness to Israel. But we can read Romans from Western context and completely miss a whole lot of what Paul is saying there about God's honor, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, what all of that means, because we reduce it to an individual's relationship with God through a, a guilt metaphor. 
Uh, in the fear-oriented world, think about an animistic context where people live in a constant battle of the spiritual world. There's a lot of that in the Muslim world, too. But God is a ruler or a deliverer. I, I would say warrior. God is a mighty warrior uh, who is more powerful than all the other spiritual beings. Uh, he's sovereign. He's transcendent. Uh, he created all things. He stands above all things. He dominates all things. And he defeats spiritual oppression and the rulers of the world. This is the Ephesians 6 language, spiritual warfare kinds of language. Principalities and powers language. Think Colossians, uh, the old stoicheia, the, the spiritual forces that hold people down. God has, you know, Jesus leads us in triumphal procession over all the heavenly hosts and the spiritual forces and principalities and powers uh, because he's the ultimate cosmic power. Uh, Mark, anything you'd want to uh, add to that or expand on with that? No, I think you covered it. But again, it's, I think a lot of it has to do with the context in which our worldview has been shaped by our culture. And it has to do with you know, whether you're focusing in on the guilt of an individual or the honor or the shame of a community. Uh, I, I, I may tell the story again tomorrow if you come back tomorrow, but one quick story. Uh, a father... In, a, in an honor-shame culture, loves his children. But his young teenage daughter gets pregnant out of wedlock, and it's going to bring shame on the culture, or, or on his family in that culture. What does he do? He loves her very much. But shame is, I mean, the honor of the family is more important than his love. We don't get that in this context. Love is more important than anything else in our context. In their context, honor is more important. And he has his sons make sure she has an accident and she dies. Although he loves her, the honor of the family is more important. And we don't get that. And that's an example of what we're talking about. The honor of God is more important than whether you like God or not. <laughs> And, and that's, uh, we have to unpack that. We're going to unpack some of that tomorrow. One of the things that stunned me in working with Muslim refugees uh, the last couple of years uh, and talking with them is they have gone through these horrible experiences of war and terror and death and just loss. And none of them are asking, how can a loving God allow this? Just from their worldview, that's not the issue. The honor of God and the faithfulness of God may be in question, but it's just a totally different way of thinking. And and their lives exist for the honor of God. And so if their suffering and their death somehow works to God's glory and God's honor, then you know we must accept that. Because the honor of God is above all things. Man, you just that just we, we, we get we don't have a bucket to put that in. All right, uh, let me show you a, a, a chart. This comes from the 3D Gospel, which, by the way, you can go to 3D Gospel. You can go to honorshame.com. There's some really great resources you can go to. But uh, they just talk about the difference in terms of an evangelistic summary. So from a guilt-oriented background, the intention of God is God loves us, has a wonderful plan for our life. And the human problem is we have broken God's laws, personal sins, create a barrier. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that removes God's judgment or his punishment and we have to accept Jesus as our personal Savior and be forgiven of our sins. But from a shame-oriented culture, God created us as his children to share his glory and his honor. Um, and the problem is that we have rejected God, acted as if he didn't exist, and dishonored him and shamed him. Uh, and so we have cut ourselves off and wandered away from him and become orphans. We're outside the community. We brought shame on God. And God rightfully should distance himself from us. But, shockingly, he welcomes us and receives us and gives honor to us as we come back to him. Jesus pursued us, brought us to Jesus, removes our shame, and restores our glory. And you even have this great language in the New Testament about how we will reign with him. Uh, and our glory and honor, God shares that instead of holding it for himself. He shares it with his human family. And so the response, the salvific response is giving allegiance to God, receiving adoption to his family, turning from shameful ways that dishonor God's face and act in ways that restore and establish God's face. Uh, now, from a, a fear-based culture, you've got the sovereignty of God, his spiritual authority over us, 
our idolatry, our playing around with other gods uh, separates us from God and we turn to these dark uh, inferior powers instead of the ultimate power of God. And Jesus comes and defeats the principalities and powers of darkness and liberates us from our bondage and service to the false gods uh, and the limited powers and restores us by the power of God who reigns over all. And so we turn to Jesus alone as the only power uh, to free us from magic and superstition and other gods and so forth and so on. So you can see how that works out. Uh, another way of looking at it in terms of the summary, guilt is focused on the courtroom, lawgiver, judge, law-breaking, sacrifice, forgiveness. Shame is focused on community, fathers. You can kind of read through there and see how that works out. Fear, uh, oriented cultures, it's not the courtroom or community, but it's combat, spiritual combat. Now, uh, all of those are in play in North America. Uh, and depending on what community people come from, and as we have a more global community, you've got pockets of all of these floating around in your community. But that's why that triangle that has you know guilt down in one corner and shame up another corner, these are all constantly in play among us, but we do tend toward one another. <coughs> if the only way we know how to speak is this, we've really limited how the gospel speaks good news. Yes, ma'am. However, it's very important, very interesting to me that most of our, many of our new contemporary Christian songs focus on the shame aspect. Mm -hmm. um, the, the He alone is infinitely glorious and, and all of that. It's, it's been an interesting Isn't shift. that interesting? We've always sung better than we've preached. <laughs> uh, Leonard Allen's here. He has a, a new book out on the Holy Spirit as the, the power of God that drives mission. It's a really phenomenal book. But one of the things he, he talks about is how we have our, our word, if we had been listening to the songs we were singing, we'd have had a better theology all along. I think God is giving us, you know, I believe uh, that the Bible is a unique inspired word of God and the authoritative canon by which we measure all things, but I think God inspires things that aren't in the Bible. And I think God gives songs continually to the church. Uh, and the songs that God is giving the church often are more insightful than the preaching is as well. And if you look at what is being sung in the churches, a lot of it is kind of shallow, I guess, and popish. But it's pointing us in directions that a lot of times we're missing when we get ready to preach the gospel. Think about how many songs we're singing that really resonate with people are songs of welcome and inclusion and belonging. Yes, ma'am. Um, one of the things I spent four years teaching in Washington and Washington, so I had the opportunity to work with teaching English Bible study, which was mostly college and high school age students. And it amazed me um, how many, and I taught middle school, yeah. how many of my students blamed themselves and took shame upon themselves for things that had nothing to do with them, yet they never, it never in their mind crossed that maybe a parent shouldn't have been working so much that at two years old they were left alone to pull a pot of hot water down on themselves and get burned. Mm -hmm. They were being naughty. It was their fault. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, because it is a very shame-based culture, it's a Chinese-based culture, it was always interesting when we talked about the gospel, talked about Jesus, they latched onto that something fierce. Um, one in particular, and we had to have some of the people, some of the other Americans who were close to her, she associated Christianity and Christ with the first place she felt truly welcome as she was, with that expectation that her family put on it. But then she, adopt, because it was mostly Americans who talked to her, she then wanted to adopt all things American because mm -hmm. she connected yeah. those. And so they had to have that conversation with her too, so it's just kind of interesting. Well, if you look at who Jesus connected with, wasn't it typically people who had been excluded on the margins, shamed, um, the system was not working for them? Uh, jump onto this next one. Let me just show you a map. Uh, this comes, I think, from the Honor Shame, either the 3D Gospel book or the Honor Shame. I can't remember where I ripped it off of, but I didn't, we didn't generate it. Um, and where you see gray, that's where they didn't get responses back. But those would be very much shame with some fear-oriented. But look, the guilt-based cultures, how limited those are in terms of historic cultural dominance. Those are Northern European and former colonies. Uh, but if you look at the red and then you would have tons and tons of green in a lot of these and some red as well. The world is primarily shame and uh, 
fear-based. And the great thing about the Bible is it speaks to people in ways that the preaching of it may not. And people hear things that go beyond what's in the pulpit some of the time as they're reading the stories of Jesus. I think about slaves who heard a gospel about a God who delivers slaves out of Egypt in the white churches that supported slavery and uh, began to believe and write spirituals. Well, the, the Bible has a way of speaking in these parts of the world, but often the people at the top of the power structures who are running the seminaries are actually uh, taking the claws out of or taking the power out of the stories that are speaking as people are reading scripture. And we really need to empower people around the world to hear scripture in their own culture, in their own language, and hear how death, burial, and resurrection speaks directly to them and not making them go through a Western guilt-based way of thinking. All right, well, we've got more stuff, but we ran out of time. So tomorrow, uh, Mark Hooper, uh, who uh, uh, is a director for... Uh, Asian missions with us at MRN, former missionary to India, and has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Mumbai, is going to talk with you about uh, how the gospel speaks in an honor-shame culture. Uh, and this is new stuff for a lot of us, so be sure and come back. And then on Friday, we're going to look at some gospel texts, texts from the gospel, and talk about what does this... What does this say to people, not just from a guilt background, but from a shame, honor, culture, or from a fear, uh, power, culture? Thank you all for coming. It's been great to be with you. We'd be happy to stand here and talk.